Well, it is both humbling and exciting uh, to be with you, my family, my FBG family, whether here in the worship center in Liberty Hill or in the gym venue. It is a joy uh, to open up the scriptures, and like I said, it is humbling. So I'm going to ask you to open to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and as you do that, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, as you do that, I would also ask you to, to consider a question. Have you ever been in a situation where either with a group of people or um, in a place that as you're with them, you kind of forget that maybe you're not from there or you're not a native along with these people, and it becomes clear that you're not from around there. Have you ever been in that situation? I certainly have. Uh, I've tra- Growing up in Montana and in the Rocky Mountains, uh, we've traveled around. Shannon and I have been in Connecticut, we've been in Colorado, we've been here in Texas, we've been in Washington and North Carolina. We've been at several places, but my heart, and as we moved here, back here to Texas, I love Texas. I remember when I first moved here out of college 13 years ago, I was a bachelor, I had just gotten this little apartment, and I remember moving in late the, the day before and had gone to the grocery store and got a box of cereal, some milk, and a little bit of honey to put on the cereal. That was about all I had. And I remember waking up that first morning. Here I am. I'm a, living in Texas. I'm a Texan. First morning as a Texan. And I, uh, I pour the cereal, and I realized I didn't buy coffee. And at that point, coffee was a, a necessary thing. But the previous tenant had left some tea in the cupboard. So I grab the tea, I make tea that morning, and as I'm sitting there and I'm eating my bowl of cereal, I notice on the milk that it is from Texas. I notice on the container of honey that it is also from Texas. And I realize that this truly is the place, the land flowing with milk and honey, that this is a, that Texas is a, is a wonderful place. And God had blessed me to, to meet Shannon, a Texan. And, and so, my family, we started here. We, we started our married life here in Texas and then moved to Colorado. But when I came back and I joined this pastoral team, I had this experience uh, along the lines of the question I asked you. I'm sitting there, and it had not been long, and maybe a couple of weeks, and the, the pastoral team, so Kevin, Kurt Prater, Kurt Sparkman, Brett, David, we, we sit around and, and we brainstorm we, you know, cast vision, we dream big dreams, and sometimes it's very simple. We check in on stuff to make sure everybody is on the same page, and we kind of go around the horn. We sit in Kevin's office, and we kind of go around, and so you, you, you sit there, and you think, okay, what do I need these, these other team members to know, and, or what feedback do I need to get from them, and so here I am, one of my first one of these meetings, and it becomes my turn. And I'm getting ready to, okay, I've got some, some big vision stuff, big picture, really excited about the direction God's leading us, and I've got these great ideas. And so I need to get their feedback. I don't need it right then. I need to kind of get them thinking and then down the road gather feedback from them. So I, I say, what I need from you guys is I need you guys to think about these things. And I share my grand vision, all very important details. And, and I say, okay, so that's what I got. And then it goes to Kurt Prater. And Kurt, he's just got a couple of quick, uh, you know, 
informational things to share, and so he shares those with the rest of the group, and then he finishes and says, I would just like to stop and point out the fact that Chad just said, use guys, (laughs) when the appropriate term would be (laughs) y'all. And immediately, Kevin and the others lean in and said, I know, didn't you guys? I didn't hear anything else he said. I was so distracted by the fact that he said, use guys, instead of y'all, I'm sorry. Anyway, and so then they just kept going. And so all my grand visions in that first, you know, week or two, because it had become very clear to me that although I was here, this is exactly where God had called me, I wasn't from around here. But I've learned. I say y'all now. Okay, I get it. I get it. And so that experience of being in a place and becoming very familiar with it, but then having that recollection that this is not exactly your native turf. That's probably experience we've all had at some time, at some place. And this is an idea or a mentality that Paul desperately wants the Corinthians to understand. As he planted the church, you can read in Acts 18 when Paul first delivers the gospel to Corinth. It's a It's a community that's about 50 miles west of Athens on a significant trade route at that time, so it was very cosmopolitan. You had a lot of people coming from a lot of different places, and Corinth had its struggles. The Corinthian church and the Corinthian Christians had a lot of obstacles in front of them. And Paul, through his first letter, through his many visits, and then in the second letter, is continuing to plead with them. Because they, it's not as though they were denying Christ outright. The challenge they faced is that they had adopted certain elements of the Corinthian worldview that were a challenge to them fully experiencing all that God had called them to be. They had adopted a worldview that because of the, the affluency of Corinth, because of the multiculturalism of Corinth, because of the highly educated people in Corinth, there were elements of their worldview that prioritized financial success, uh, outward appearance, climbing the social ladder. These were things that were a priority in Corinth. That was just a part of the culture. And the Christians in Corinth were constantly confronted with this. And like I said, they weren't denying Christ, but their priorities were oftentimes a little off to the point that they had started to question Paul's leadership and his legitimacy. They had seen his outward appearance. They were saying that because of his outward appearance, because he wasn't that impressive as a speaker, because he did manual labor with his hands sometimes, building tents, making tents in order to to make ends meet, that they had seen some other Christian leaders come in that were impressive, that had winsome speech, that were adorned very well. And so their ideas of success and what they should be pursuing and what the Christian life should look like was was somewhat muddled. And so what we see here is Paul is pleading with them to rightly understand where all of this external adornment, how that plays into the Christian life. And so the section that we find ourselves in here today in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is going to bring out a few ideas, but he ultimately wants them to see what their identity really is. 
that regardless of whatever trade they're in, regardless of whatever family line they've come from, whatever pedigree they have, whatever success they've had in business, their identity remains the same, and it's the same for every Christian, and that is as ambassadors for Christ, Him speaking through them, and that as ambassadors, they've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That's where we're going to end today. But let's see how Paul develops that argument and how he begins to plead with them. So, starting in verse 1 of chapter 5, it's not a super long chapter, so we're going to kind of trudge through this whole thing, and we're going to see something just incredible. And I will tell you that as I have been studying this this week, it has, this passage has truly stretched me and revealed areas of my life that I need to rethink and to give over recognizing the ministry of reconciliation in that area. So here we are in verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but what we would be, that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So he first introduces this idea of tent. He says, he's using this analogy that this earthly body, this earthly existence is our tent, but God has prepared a building an eternal structure. And so if you think about the analogy, a tent is something very temporary. And for Paul, he's all too you know, aware of that, being a tent maker, that tents are not permanent structures. They're a very temporary structure, but that we're not intended to be in for very long. And he's trying to draw the attention that this physical dwelling, our body, this is a temporary deal. So when we try to measure success or we try to focus our attention on what we're going to receive in this body, in this temporary existence here on earth, we have to recognize that shouldn't be our priority because it's temporary by nature. And that part of the things that he's trying to help them see is that this life we are to live is to be modeled after Christ. He's going to talk about how we once regarded Christ in this kind of tent format according to the body, according to the flesh. But he's trying to grant them a vision that Christ's success as king didn't come in spite of suffering in this body, but through it. That he succeeded in his mission because of suffering in this body, and that this body is temporary, therefore the suffering is also temporary. And so he's trying to draw this attention that this is not our home. This is not it. That our citizenship is in heaven, as he'll say other places. But this is temporary. This life, this body is a tent. And so he continues on. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so he says, given that we can now see this is a temporary situation, whatever we do here or elsewhere, we do it with one particular aim, to please Him. And that's a big deal here, because what Paul, he, he lumps that with this idea that we'll all be judged. And I know that when I first read that, I go, okay, wait a minute. We must, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Well, I know what I'm due. I know that if, if it's me that's being judged alone, I know what I'm going to get, and it's not good. I'm fully deserving of all of the wrath of God in and of myself. And what Paul, he's not contradicting what he says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. He's not contradicting Romans 8 where he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's absolutely true. And so what Paul's talking about here is our aim is to please him, not in order to gain salvation, but our activity in this temporary life is evidence of a transformed heart. As we labor for Him and seek to please Him, it's not so that we can then gain our acceptance or our justification. Our aiming to please Him is because He has transformed our hearts already. And now we aim to live for Him. And so He talks about the tent of our earthly body and He talks about our aim. Now let's continue. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live, now listen, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So he goes on to say, Corinthians, I'm not trying again to commend myself to you. I'm not trying to convince you that, that I'm legitimate. He's already done that. But what he's saying is, I'm trying to make an argument such that when others who are still believing that what success in this worldly realm is what matters or is what the priority is, I'm trying to give you an argument so that you can talk to them, that you can have a defense and persuade them that it's not about the external, it's about the heart. A heart that has been transformed and compelled and controlled by love for Christ. Therefore, we don't live for ourselves. We live for Him. And he continues, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we were once regarded, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, 
who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, so because of that, because we've been reconciled and been given the the message of reconciliation and the ministry of reconciliation, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise be to God. It's not, it shouldn't be that confusing what he's trying to get at here. He's trying to convince them that our priorities, our perspective, should not be that of external success. I think here in Georgetown and in Central Texas and in America, We can certainly relate to the temptation to make climbing social ladder, to make comfort, to make financial success, relational success, business success. It's tempting to make those the priority. And so when I read this, I can absolutely relate to the struggle the Corinthians had. I I can absolutely get in there with them. And so I'm challenged as I read this to recognize what Paul is doing here. He's, call, he's telling me that if I've been reconciled, if I'm in Christ, which I am, then that means something very specific. I've been called to be an ambassador. That means anyone who's been called, anyone who is in Christ and has received reconciliation is called to be an ambassador. Well, there's two things there to understand. A, reconciliation, and B, ambassador. Reconciliation is a term that describes a relationship, whether between one or two people. But it's a relationship that was once close and friendly that something has caused that to be disrupted. And so there is division. There is disharmony in that relationship. But someone who has been reconciled, that relationship has been restored and brought back to the way it was originally, that they have been reconciled. The reality is, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. Paul tells us elsewhere that we were enemies. It's not that we were just neutral or somehow just kind of in this gray area and just, we didn't really want God, but we weren't like against Him. That's not what the Scripture says. That our sin in our heart's position, we were enemies. Not only did we not want God, we didn't like God. We didn't like the things of God. We wanted self. Our aim was not God. Our aim was either approval of man or our own pleasure. And we recognize when we come to know the Lord, the first thing we we see, we saw it on the, the baptism video, 
that we need Him. We agree with the fact that we are in an absolute dead state. Remember one time, Pastor Sparkman said, it's not the, we, we get caught up in this idea that we're only mostly dead. No, we were all dead. We had no ability to generate life. But Christ has brought reconciliation. God, through the blood, the sacrifice, and the death of Christ, has brought reconciliation, and now we have been reunited with the God of the universe. And we are in right relationship with Him. And one of the things that that means is we'll necessarily be excited about that. (laughs) We'll be excited. We'll tell people. It will exude from us. There's a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon where he says, He who really has a high estimate of Jesus will think much of Him. And as the thoughts are sure to run over at the mouth, He will talk much of Him. Do we so? If Jesus is precious to you, you will not be able to keep your good news to yourself. You will be whispering it into your child's ear. You will be telling it to your spouse. You will be earnestly imparting it to your friend. Without the charms of eloquence, you will be more than eloquent. Your heart will speak and your eyes will flash as you talk of His sweet love. Every Christian here is either a missionary or an imposter. Recollect that. You either try to spread abroad the kingdom of Christ or else you do not love Him at all. It cannot be that there is a high appreciation of Jesus and a totally silent tongue about Him. We have been granted the opportunity to be ambassadors for Christ. And the point here is that it's not as though we have to generate these ideas about Christ to tell. We don't have to come up with some sort of power and boldness. But it says here, God making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled. And earlier he says, that this is from the Lord. That in verse 5, He who prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That we are indwelt by His Spirit and He is appealing through us. So therefore, think of it as a conduit. right? A, A conduit pipe, power running through it. Well, the question we have to ask is if we're called to be ambassadors, and if we are in Christ, we are called to be ambassadors, are there times and places or elements of our life in which we're not willing to be ambassadors? Because this idea of living on mission goes to all of us. Last week, Dr. Fort challenged us to put our yes on the altar. Well, we begin here. Are we willing to leverage every element of our daily life to be an ambassador? Do we believe the fact that God has sovereignly placed us in our neighborhood, in our house, in our family, in our friend group, in our offices? 
at the gym, the places that we dwell, God has created opportunity for us to be an ambassador, that He, through us, would bring the, me- the message and the ministry of reconciliation, that others would be reconciled unto Himself. And one of the things as I was looking at the text, I was like, okay, ambassadors for Christ, I get that. Ambassadors, by definition, are not on their home turf. We don't have ambassadors to the U.S. living in the U.S. We have ambassadors for the United States living in foreign countries, which reaffirms and points us back to this idea, this is a tent, this is not our home. Our citizenship is not here, it is in heaven. We're ambassadors, meaning we represent Him, we speak for Him in a place that is not our home. And when you reverse engineer what Paul has just laid out in front of us in chapter 5, it's just astounding that as called ambassadors with the ministry of reconciliation, that begins first if we are a new creation. If we are a new creation and we recognize the old has died, the new is here, this is our life now, this is our identity now, not the priorities and perspectives of the surrounding world, but our identity is in Christ. That's where it begins. If that's the case, then what will follow is love for Christ. We will be compelled. We will not be quiet because we are so overwhelmed and stirred by the love of Christ, the love of God shown to us through the sacrifice of Christ that we can't be quiet. And if that's the case, then our aim is to please Him, not to please self and not to please others because we're so caught up in the love that compels us that we want to please Him. And we can do all of this and that reality that this is a tent becomes no problem. That whether that means our physical persecution or our social persecution, okay, then we're following the example of the apostles before us and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there there are absolute challenges to that. I was trying to think of the idea of this idea of love being that which compels us. And I heard this analogy, that, and it resonates with me, and I, I want to share it with you, but this idea that there are, if love is the primary compulsory element to our life in Christ as ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation, that our love for Christ pushes us out of our comfort zone into the areas God has placed us. There are going to be secondary motives, too, that aren't necessarily bad, but they are not as powerful and they are not the primary motivator. And I was thinking in terms of my marriage, that the analogy that what keeps me from cheating on my wife, when I, when I consider that idea, I go, well, there are certainly legitimate reasons not to. There's the idea that, well, she's the best I could do. 
right? That's not, a, that's not a great motivator, but I'm very convinced that she is absolutely out of my league. There's the idea that, well, it could affect my job as a pastor. That's a legitimate reason. Not to speak of the devastation it would cause my children. And these are absolute legitimate motivators. But the primary motive is I love her. I'm compelled because I love her. And although these other secondary issues and, and reasons are good in and of themselves, they're not primary. And for us to recognize our reconciliation that we are new creations in Christ, His love should overwhelm us and overflow out of our hearts so that our aim in pleasing Him and our willingness to suffer in this life for the sake of others is natural. And so we have to ask the Lord to search our hearts today. Because the reality is there are some in this room that are not reconciled to the Lord. Either you've been hanging around for a while, maybe you're here visiting family, but you have been putting off. The Lord has been pursuing you, and you have not embraced the fact that you are at odds with Him. And you're complacent and comfortable in, in sin. And today the Lord is saying, not anymore. Paul at the end says, at, well, the beginning of chapter 6, working together with Him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today's the day. There's another group in here that have been coming to church, and perhaps you think you are reconciled, but you, now, you recognize there are vast areas of your life that you have not given over to Him and that you're not willing to be an ambassador for Him through. And I plead with you, Submit, for there is no greater joy than walking in faithful obedience with Jesus Christ. That whatever we're searching for, whatever idolatry we're pursuing or expecting something else, whatever pleasure we think it can give us, whatever satisfaction or contentment, it cannot. Only Christ can. And there are some in this room who have been reconciled, who are in Christ. And you fully embrace that you are a new creation. And so be encouraged this morning to be ambassadors for Him. To, be, to give every corner, every facet of your life over to Him. While we are in this tent, this very temporary structure, let's leverage every opportunity, every relationship, every trip to the grocery store to the ministry of reconciliation.